Welcome back to another episode of Different Aspects Podcast. I'm your producer and host, Clancy Sindlinger, coming to you from Northern British Columbia on the traditional territory of the Simshan and Nishka people. Today, I'm stoked to share with you an interview that I did back in December with Jennifer Olson. With a couple of stops along the way, including a teaching degree and some work as an air traffic controller, Jen has made a career as a mountain guide with certifications both from the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides and International Federation of Mountain Guides Association. Jen has had an opportunity to explore many countries and mountain ranges around the world, both while guiding and on personal trips. In our conversation, we talk about her career, as well as the process to gaining such a high level of certification, some of the projects Jen's been working on lately, which have been taking her attention in a completely different direction. My name is Jen Olson, and I am she, her, and I right now am in Calgary, Alberta. Yeah, I'm just here visiting my mom for a few days. Nice. That's awesome. Um, You grew up in Calgary, right? That's right. Yep. What was that? What was that kind of like in terms of your trajectory to where you are now? Did you kind of come to... um, like recreating outside in a big way later on or was it always kind of there when you were a kid um no it was not always there and I I mean luckily I did both my parents grew up on the farm in Saskatchewan so I did visit the farm once or twice a year and had exposure to a lifestyle of sort of swimming in lakes and riding dirt bikes and playing in granaries, picking berries, helping with the garden. Um, But mostly I grew up in suburbia near Fish Creek, which is a provincial park in Calgary. So that was nice. And then, um, and my parents did introduce me to skiing, but I didn't really get into ski racing until high school. And all my climbing stuff came through university, through the outdoor pursuits program at the University of Calgary. Do you remember the first time you tried climbing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I did have one like small exposure to it through a friend about just before I joined the outdoor pursuits program at the University of Calgary. So mostly, though, it was through that program and which was kind of neat because I learned how to lead climb right away. And I actually took my first lead fall was a traditional lead fall (laughs) on um, gear at the University of Calgary climbing gym in cement. Actually, in hindsight, I think it was kind of sketchy, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so, um, I, so I learned a lot of great skills right away and I had a bunch of people to practice with. And that program no longer exists, right? That's right. Yeah. There are other programs. I think there's still one at Mount Royal and then there's ones at College of the Rockies and Thompson Rivers University. Yeah. You want to just talk a little bit about the program? Yeah, it was 
a degree, so a kinesiology degree, and there, I can't remember sort of what portion the credits were of that program that you got to learn how to backcountry ski, rock climb, ice climb, mountaineer, um, and then there was also some paddling as well, and then there was in the third year on a, a big adventure that you could go on. But I actually didn't make it to that just before that big adventure part of the program. I switched and got a teaching degree. Um, yeah. Wow, that program sounds like a pretty amazing introduction to a lot of the things that you're still doing today. After completing your degree at the University of Calgary, what was your path from there? Did you try teaching or did you decide right away you wanted to become a mountain guide? Yeah. Yes, good questions. Um, I did work for Outward Bound in Oregon, and I really enjoyed it. And I did have opportunities to stay in the United States and guide, but I quickly realized that if I wanted to guide in Canada, I should sort of move back home and start working through the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides courses. So initially I worked for Outward Bound, then I did my hiking guides, and then I did my rock climbing guides, and then I... I think I did my ski and then my alpine, something like this. And that all happened over eight or nine years. It took me quite a long time to do all that. And I also became an air traffic controller during that time. I wasn't 100% committed to the whole program at the beginning. Um, but then after I worked as a cook in a ski lodge, I realized how great the ski industry was in a backcountry ski lodge. And so then I got fired up to do the whole thing. Cool. Um, yeah, you say it took you a long time over eight or nine years, but it's like quite a, um, like a Goliath of a process to go through the ACMG, especially to become like a, a full internationally certified guide in like the three disciplines, rock, alpine and ski. It's like quite committing. Yeah, at some point, there was a stat that the average was six years to go through, but I don't know if that's the same or not. I know people who have done it um, shorter than that. And you had mentioned that while you were going through the program, you were also getting into air traffic controlling a little bit. How did you get introduced to that and what was it like? Um, you trained for that in Cornwall, Ontario, and then I got, I got placed. You don't really get to choose where you go. I got placed in Norman Wells in the Northwest Territories, so that was kind of a wild ride yeah could definitely be some applicable skills like heli skiing yeah it was good for learning um navigation and some meteorology some weather stuff so yeah i don't know i enjoyed it but um i didn't want to live in the northwest territories for the rest of my life so <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit more about the process of going through the acmg program and you know as you said for you that was almost a decade of your life and I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience. Yeah, I loved, I think becoming a guide is a lot of fun. And um, it involves meeting up with like-minded people and learning this, you know, getting competent in all the things. So backcountry skiing and ski mountaineering and rock climbing, multi-pitch rock climbing, big wall climbing, alpine climbing ice climbing, mixed climbing. So it's so fun to go do all these things in the name of professional development and 
um, becoming a guide. I also did a lot of sort of tail guiding and I worked in avalanche research a little bit. Um, so I, and I love learning. So I think becoming a guide is really fun and you can travel with it because it's really good to broaden your base of like what types of rock you climb on and what types of snowpacks you work with. And um, so I went to Europe and all across BC and into the United States. So it gives you a lot of excuses to um, train and um, play and gain um, a lot of skill. And obviously it's, but it's also not for people who don't have money or can't find a way to fund that. So somehow I managed to fund that. Um, yeah, I lived a life of like hand to mouth most of my life. <laughs> yeah, I can relate. <laughs> um, as a guide aspirant, I've kind of heard of how just the pressure of doing that learning, but of needing to like have this mentality of getting as much done as possible, as many peaks, you know, as many lines. Did you ever find that that like played into your decision making in a way that you maybe didn't want it to? Yeah. Like I'm sure there have been times that I've moved forward due to pressures that were external to me and maybe not as important as I felt they were. So like there, I can think of one time, I'm just trying to think of some specific things. It's interesting because I don't know if it's specifically, oh, I need to do this objective because I need to train to become a guide. I think it's also, there's also other pressures. Like I don't want to be the one to speak up or, you know, getting too attached to the goal versus the process sort of being like, yeah, being willing to let go of the goal or being willing to be the one who's a little bit more scared or has less risk tolerance. I think, I think ideally how we learn is we do that. We do, we make mistakes and hopefully the consequences aren't too severe. I think that's how you develop judgment is by going out there every day and playing and like guessing the, the goal is to guess what you think the conditions are going to be and then go and experience the conditions and then sort of look back and see how your judgment was. Were you, were you sort of thinking it was safer than it was or more dangerous than it was and, and just constantly learning that way, constantly making guesses and then checking your guesses. And I, I think we all get lucky more than, you know, we'd like to think it's skill, but sometimes it's just luck because it's sometimes it's hard to know for sure. Um, exactly what's going on out there. And there's always objective hazards you can't control, like rockfall and icefall and, and to some degree avalanches. Yeah, I do, I do feel like I hear word of mouth that maybe, especially with the ski program, it just keeps getting more and more competitive. And as far as I know, though, I haven't heard yet that there's more guides than there are work, at least for sure in the high seasons of winter and summer. But that's kind of only four to six months a year. So it's, um, but yeah, I do hear that it, it can be more competitive than it, than it probably was when I went through. But then there's this other side where, I don't know, sometimes you're like, whoa, when I had to do that, it was eight days and now it's only three or now you get to, you get to go to Lake Louise in your Alpine guides exam, or I don't know, there's different things that, different things that change. Some things sound harder and some things sound easier. Yeah, the program 
always evolves as it should, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm really excited when I hear about my female peers who are working on these exams. And I think that's amazing to have um, a lot more female instructors in the, um, the people who are examining and instructing. Yeah, absolutely. I think having more women as instructors is one of the actions that these organizations could take to have more women represented in the programs. (laughs) I like what you said about goal versus process. I think that's a phrase I'll use (laughs) in the future when I'm (laughs) looking in in front of me at the goal I have in my head. Um, So uh, that was great. We got to chat a little bit about becoming a guide. What about um, the career you've had so far as a mountain guide? What, like, what are some things you love about your job? Yeah, I, I guess right off the hop, I just want to say, I don't think I've been the most fiscally responsible guide. Like I've never had to raise a family. I've never had to make money more than to pay for my next climbing trip. And so, and I've never really valued saving money, which now I'm learning that is important. But anyway, so I am the type of person who has traveled around the world with guiding, which has been amazing. So going and working a season in France, Italy, Switzerland, and then you know, making some money. So traveling while I'm making money and then taking my money after I've made it and traveling some more. Um, yeah, I've worked in Russia, New Zealand and Norway. Um, yeah. So just so much travel and meeting amazing people and having amazing experiences. So yeah, I think it's in that way, it's one of the best jobs ever. Also, I think Canada is one of the most incredible countries on the planet. And so to be a guide from Canada means that I've seen some of the most spectacular places on the planet. Um, Are there any standout trips or like moments that you had while you were guiding? I mean, I just, yeah, I'm going to think of one specific, but right off the top of my head, I just think, oh, so many sunrises, like the painful part of being an alpine guide is getting up in the middle of the night, but the most rewarding part is all the amazing sunrises I've seen and all the summits I've stood on. <clears throat> um, I was a part of a team that led some very wise and accomplished Japanese women up Assiniboine, including uh, Jinko Tabai, who was the first woman to climb Everest and the oldest woman to climb Everest. So I was a part of a group of people taking a bunch of these women up Assiniboine. That was quite a memorable trip. And I also did that with Barry Blanchard. Um, I also got to be a part of, and Mammut had a 150th anniversary and they hired a whole bunch of guides from around the world. And one of the trips I got to do with that was guiding in Patagonia. And that was just so I had just the best team of folks from Lithuania and, and we had really lovely summit um, on Gijeme. And then afterwards they went and summited um, Fitzroy and I had been on Fitzroy just before that. So that was a very memorable trip. Yeah. And um, I've also just feel like I've been a part of people accomplishing things that they never thought was possible. And so that's always a big reward to help people achieve the impossible. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. No kidding. eh? That really is a a special part of guiding is 
just that fresh awe of traveling through mountains or waterways with people who have never been there before and who are seeing something absolutely spectacular for the first time. And of all these continents and countries and mountain ranges that you've worked in, which places stand out in your mind as being particularly special to you? Yeah, lots of places. Um, one, I did get to guide the Bugaboos to Rogers Pass traverse, and that was that's a pretty special part of the world. Any trips to the Bugaboos, are, that's one of my favorite places, and I really enjoy guiding there, especially Pigeon Spire is very, I never get bored and tired of Pigeon Spire. <laughs> and also, yeah, for quite a few years, I worked with um, a group that um, is through the Conrad Kane Society, organized by Pat Morrow, where every year he gets almost 10 teens, mostly 16-year-olds, into the Bugaboos and, um, or somewhere local. And that's a really fun thing to be a part of. It feels really good to help inspire young people in the mountains. Um, Lake O'Hara in the Rockies is really special. Yeah, the Rockies are so special. Uh, I feel really lucky to have spent so much time there and I look forward to spending more time there in the future. And your your most recent um, kind of big undertaking, you started going to nursing school. Right? Yes. Uh, in some ways, it's been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and it's not, I'm, I mean... Like for the most part, I'm quite good at school. I'm really smart <laughs> with academics, maybe not in other ways, but I can do school. Um, and not that, I mean, I do think nursing's hard, but it's um, more of that, it's just the timing of it, the age, the age I'm at, the timing of it. And I just moved away from my community and it's been, yeah, it's just been really lonely. It's been one of the loneliest times of my life. And, uh, and so, yeah, just a lot of dark darkness i call it a spiritual winter and but also feel like i've um introduced a lot of new things into my life that are incredibly rewarding related to psychedelic therapies and um somatic therapies so it's it's sort of almost like goes hand in hand like some of these really big challenges are also become some of the biggest rewards. So I'm hoping I'm getting, starting to feel like I see a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of this degree. I'm, I'm done in April and um, my next two practicums, one is in Uganda and the other one's in Invermere. And then I'm going to start working in Golden. So I think it just feels like I can, yeah, I can start to feel a bit of levity um, at the end of this, these, this time. So yeah, you're you're getting really close. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. thank you. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's sort of like if I had had the crystal ball, I might not have signed up for it. But that's how life goes. And um, and I do feel like I've learned a lot about myself as a person. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I like myself more as a person. I think I'm, I think I've changed a lot in some ways. And um, have you continued guiding a little bit as you go through nursing school? Yes, I feel so lucky. I think, yeah, guiding is such a great job. So yeah, I've been able to guide skiing, which is the most fun thing to do in the West Kootenays, and teach avalanche courses. And um, and then in the summer, do more mountaineering type stuff in um, like, yeah, like Rockies, Bugaboos Coast. So yeah, so no, it's been a really good way 
to fund nursing school when I, when I can fit it in. Yeah, it sounds like a, a bit of a jigsaw act to fit everything together, but I imagine maybe uh, using a different part of your brain is a bit of a relief. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it just makes it so that I really appreciate guiding and I appreciate my time outside so much. Yeah, it's really, really important to me. Do you see tying it into wilderness therapy or something along those lines? Or are you just looking at a nursing job for now? Hmm. My dream is to combine, yeah, mental health slash psychedelic therapy with adventure, adventure, maybe therapy, I guess. Um, so backcountry trips that involve adventure and some medicine work. So we'll see when, when and if that takes form in the future but in the meantime like until that sort of becomes a legal option i'll be doing either community mental health or um home health or something like this yeah it's an amazing dream i hope it becomes uh, legally feasible for you to do that <laughs> i'd like to ask a little bit more about um your recreational trips i kind of sure. something i always am curious about as a guide how does going through all of that risk assessment training and all kind of those years of structured education does that change the way that you recreate and can you enjoy it in the same way for the most part yes except maybe with the exception of alpine climbing and occasionally ice climbing <laughs> i think it just depends um how exhausted I am and how burnt out I am. And some of these, you know, in Canada, especially our summer Alpine season is quite short. So um, I think, I think I have gotten burnt out from Alpine climbing and maybe like ice climbing can be exhausting too, especially if it's cold. So, but for the most part, I've never burnt out on um, ski tour guiding, maybe a little bit on mechanized guiding. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Like in general, I feel like I became a guide to increase my confidence with my recreational stuff. And so, and that's definitely helped. Like I feel confident when I go and do big adventures and especially big expeditions. And that's been super rewarding because most of my expeditions have been with other women. And so, yeah, just, and also often with other guides as well. So it just is so rewarding to feel so competent in the mountains and and yes, there is also that side of like getting burnt out and then not doing it for yourself. And so I think I have had a pretty healthy balance that way, but I also am probably one of the most broke people in the industry because I've never worked um, that much enough to be that person that just works and doesn't play. Um, so yeah, I do see a lot of people in the industry that do end up having families and working a lot to pay the bills and not and losing their passion a bit. Do you think your decision making and risk management, do you think that changes when you're in a recreational context? Yeah, I think especially the more mature I am, I think as a younger guide, I sometimes would push, probably push my clients harder or push the envelope harder. I don't know. It's sort of a it's sort of a funny question. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm like, oh, it's very nuanced. There's 
there's times when as a younger guide, I would maybe be too attached to the outcome and not thinking enough about what the client needed. And then there's times as an older guide when I have more confidence to push the client if I think I think they could do it or something. So yeah, there's different, it's very nuanced in terms of understanding what makes a good guiding day and how important it is to push. And um, and then I've also seen, you know, maybe sort of older, crustier guides, like not try that hard. Um, so yeah, it really, there is really the full spectrum of sort of being, being too attached to maybe my own goals and desires versus my client's goals and desires. And then there's also, yeah, whether that is to summit when it's not appropriate for the client, or whether that is to go home to my warm bed when that's not appropriate for the client. So I think guides have to really be careful to um, be clear about what, yeah, what, what is the underlying um, agenda mm. when we're guiding. I'm curious if you're, perspective after many years in the ski industry in particular um it seems like there's such a um perceived pressure possibly to uh deliver the best experience possible and i'm wondering if you think that that is something that is sometimes like something we put on ourselves like or as a guiding team that is created oh definitely yeah, no, it definitely is. And again, this is like a really nuanced conversation, but it does help sometimes. It helps to have many voices. So it's good to be working in a team. And so you can get that sometimes the older guide that's like, no, it's this is not worth it. Um, I do feel like in general, you know, because people pay a lot of money, especially for mechanized skiing. And so there is a real big push to deliver. Um, and so years when like what this year is kind of setting up to be with uh, some really persistent weak layers, it can be really challenging. And, um, and because, you know, it's just between COVID and <laughs> there's so many factors that are making it so that the, that there's not, the companies aren't making as much money. And um, so, yeah, there's definitely pressure to get people an experience and, Especially when, I don't know, sometimes there is, there is, not always, but there can be an association with the more money I have, the more I expect not to be limited by weather and conditions or something. So um, it's nice when the clientele is grounded enough to realize that um, weather and conditions are a real thing and that, you know, there's only, can only do so much. Um, yeah, you've talked a lot about how, it seems like a bit of a theme for you, how, um, like you s seek out definitely in a recreational context, um, like spaces where you're on trips with other women. And um, have you seen the field change since you started out in terms of um, how many women there are involved or even like, um, like clientele? Do you think mountain sports are changing? Yeah, I do. Yeah, for sure. I think there's more women involved. Um, and there's different, like different activities that draw different, so some, you know, like summers, um, like draw more families and, and different activities draw, like, so skiing is most more accessible than climbing and hiking is more accessible than alpine climbing. So there's different things that draw different clientele and different genders. And 
um, yeah, there's, you know, traditionally there's been sort of the, the heli skiing can draw like a lot of men and a lot of men away from their wives and that kind of thing. But yeah, I'd say in general, there's more female guides, there's more female clientele and more family oriented. And what do you think these institutions can or are already doing um, maybe to make this a space that's that attracts more women and a more yeah diverse set of folks? Well, I think offering diverse experiences. So um, it's not just about sort of how I can get the most meters of skiing. You know, I think it's neat when there's like, I really like the heli assisted ski touring. I like the, I mean, it's, I think personally, I really like it when there's a personal development aspect to a trip. So when there's maybe there's yoga, meditation, there's, it's just not all about the physical domain. And yeah, I mean, I think there's something for everyone in that, but I do think that the more diverse it is, that also attracts more diverse clientele. Is there anything that you'd like to say to women who are like guide aspirants right now or who are just kind of starting out in a career in any of these fields? Yeah, I think I think following your heart is so important. So I do, I really advocate for people to follow their heart, but then also to stay grounded in the reality. I mean, not that this is like, do as I say, not as I do, although I'm doing it now, now that I'm 50 years old, but um, it is wise to have, I think, a way of making money that maybe isn't so dependent on the body and that can balance out the energies of guiding. So for me, I'm not super extroverted. So I find being sort of on in front of people all the time quite draining. And so it's nice for me to have um, other jobs that aren't don't have that sort of entertainment factor and and finding ways to really take care of the body so taking like especially if your job is physical it's so important to do yoga massage and have downtime and um and so that needs to be factored in because guiding sounds like a good job financially until you realize you need to rest and so it's not yeah so the wages only make sense only sound really good if you didn't actually have to rest, but you do. So, and I don't know if this is, hopefully this is sort of becoming a thing of the past, but I, you know, I was quite competitive as a woman. And I think there's sort of a syndrome when you're a minority that there's going to be the one token female. So if there's other token females, then there's quite a bit of competitiveness there. And, and now I just am in full support and I don't feel competitive anymore. And I'm so grateful for that. And I just think the more we can support each other, there's not, it's not just, there's not that token thing anymore, or hopefully it's phasing out. And so that we just need to, if you're winning, I'm winning. And so we just need to really support each other and each other's gifts and, um, and not feel so competitive. Um, yeah. I think we need to be each other's allies. Totally. Is that physicality of the job and like financial strain of not being able to guide in the alpine every day of the year is that um what kind of prompted you to go towards nursing school yeah actually there is something about for me and this isn't true for everyone but there's something about the meaningfulness of when you end up in the hospital a lot of people end up in the hospital didn't choose to be there and so there's something about being able to support people in that state that feels quite meaningful for me that's different than 
people who can afford to go heli skiing or something. So I do, I do think being outside and promoting outdoor adventure is meaningful lifestyle and work, but there's something for me that I, I just feel more meaning and being there for people who, you know, might be dying or, or might be having just some really unexpected medical trauma in their life. Um, and I know that I, I didn't want to have guiding be my only way of making money as I got older. And I also came into the somatic therapies that I found to be so healing and so meaningful. And I really wanted to find a way to offer them in the system. And then as that journey's progressed, I've also found that psychedelic therapies are super transformative. And now I want to offer that as well. So, yeah. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about somatic therapy? Yeah, the type that I trained in is called somatic experiencing and also a bit of somatic relational therapy. And they're aimed, they're called trauma therapies. So they're aimed at helping us to process emotion that's stuck in the body. That would be one way I think of saying it and recognizing Yeah, so, so the way we work with it is we spend time noticing what's happening in the body and, and seeing if we can allow it and working with it that way. And it can be very um, empowering to come into the body and be more in touch with what's happening in our body and, and be able to release patterns. So we have patterns that we've developed to survive in this world. And so learning how to repattern some of that. Um, yeah, it's really potent work. That sounds like an amazing form of therapy, especially for someone who has spent so much time mm -hmm. in a job that's really physically demanding. Yeah. Amazing. So Jen, as we're wrapping up here, uh, are there any other thoughts or maybe loose ends to tie up that you want to leave with our listeners before we finish up? I'm, I'm really proud to be, and grateful for this privileged life that I've had. And I am, I just think if anyone is drawn to it, I fully encourage it. And, and maybe also recognize that it's, um, it has, it's, it has some limitations, but not that don't let those hold you back. Just, you know, just um, plan for how to take care of them. So take care of potentially like being injured or, how to save money or I don't know, all the things have, have variety. So, but I do think it's, I think we're so lucky that this is a profession and that, and that we can, I get so much life force energy from spending time in nature in the mountains. I just, I just think such a small percentage of people on the planet get to experience that. And um, it's, it's such a joy. I want to give a huge thanks to my guest this week, Jen Olson. It was so exciting to get to hear about all the hats she's worn during her career. It's so inspiring to speak with her as she begins this new chapter. I can't wait to see how Jen brings these passions together.
As always, our cover art is by the amazing Michaela Seaton. You can find her on Instagram at Alpine Artistry. And our music is by Sunshine Drive Through. Thanks to you, our audience, for tuning in to another episode of Different Aspects Podcast, hosted and produced by myself, Clancy Sinlinger. Now, if you've made it this far, you can help to make sure that more episodes will be produced in the future by leaving a review, subscribing, or telling your friends how much you like this podcast. Until next time, I hope you get a chance to get outside. Get outside.